economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to the show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. Okay, so I think it's time to talk about space, the final frontier. I might be dating myself with that club, but (laughs) we had a couple uh, guys go up into space or lead the way up into space. They brought some other people too. We had Richard Branson of uh, Virgin Records and then Virgin Airlines, and he wanted to get up into space. and, And then Amazon, Jeff Bezos, richest guy in the world. And so these guys have caught some heat on this from some people like, oh, that's what the rich get to do. They get to go to space and we just have to stay in our trailer park and be on food stamps. And so (laughs) somehow income, I think there's a point with all that is that there's kind of income inequality built into this discussion, I think, but we'll see. Uh, who wants to take us off here on space? I think it was Justin's idea here with that with that lead in. <laughs> uh, I have no idea where to go from here. <laughs> there has been a lot of flack directed at Bezos, who is the most recent. And out of Bezos, Musk. Musk and Branson, he's the only one. Bezos is the only one who's actually been in space at this point, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think they just right. got up to the point they, where they were weightless or something, right at the edge. No, like Musk was to... shooting off rockets that were unmanned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Right. And but I, Bezos actually went up. And I think Branson has gone like close to like the stratosphere or whatever, but he hasn't actually gone into space. I think I could be wrong, on that, but uh, I'm pretty sure he hasn't yet. Yeah. So you got a lot of. You had a lot of people complaining that this was like a waste of resources and, oh, look at, look at these, you know, rich people cosplaying as astronauts, right? <laughs> but they, they actually did go into space, right? And if you look at the engineering feats that, uh, you know, watch Musk's rocket land backwards or whatever, Bezos too, and yeah. these are actually very impressive feats of engineering. And as much as I do sympathize with people who say things like, it would be great if Bezos, if we could just shoot him up into space and leave him there. Because, <laughs> you know, I do have some bones to pick with Amazon. And especially when you look at like the way wealth has been concentrated during COVID mm-hmm. and the, you know, the way these things have really destroyed small businesses. I do think that a lot of the criticism of private space flight is really misguided. Yeah. And I think actually to like go back to Russ's earlier comment, I actually don't think it's people in trailer parks who are complaining about (laughs) Bezos or Musk or, you know, Branson uh, going into space. Like it tends to be, it seems like upper middle class progressives (laughs) who are very upset about this, right? You know, I saw a lot of journalists really upset about it. People who, you know, telework, you know, who say, oh, us poor people can't go into space, only the very rich. Well, you know, we, we have to be careful when we talk about rich. Remember, if you make over $100,000 and you live in the U.S., you're the top 1% of world wealth holders. So let's put that aside. You're part of that very rich class. You know, obviously you can cut the pyramid in different ways. So you're not, you know, in, in a world where only Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are the two people in the world, you know, uh, one of them could claim to be in the bottom 50%. So there's any way you can carve it up to consider yourself unprivileged. But the point is, I'm seeing a lot of people upset about this, like Justin 
And a lot of people say, I think this is basically you're saying, I think this is a waste of resources. And to a certain extent, I kind of agree. I have no interest in space. You, If it were free, I wouldn't take one of these rockets up into space. To me, it's blackness and like a, a bunch of like little lights that are really far away. I have zero interest in anything like astrology or, or astro astronomy, <laughs> rather. I also have zero interest in astrology, actually. But, That's just because you're a Pisces, uh, though. <laughs> Gemini, Justin. But... but no, the point is, it's just not interesting to me. That I don't know why. I, I've never been that interested by it. I think important discoveries can be made in space, but I think probably like unmanned rockets do that just as well as manned rockets. And so I actually do think this is a waste of resources. You know what I, else I think is a waste of resources? That would make my wife really mad if I said out loud? Broadway. I think Broadway plays <laughs> are a huge waste of resources. A lot of people using things in ways that I wouldn't use them. But actually, as an economist, I understand just because I don't like how certain resources are being used doesn't mean that it's actually wasteful. That is, there are people who, you know, benefit from these exchanges, both the person who's involved with them and, you know, other people involved in the process of making the things. And so, you know, I'm I don't- glad you finally came back to reality. I, I, I was getting a little scared. I, I don't enjoy all. Broadway plays, but I, I recognize that some people do when they benefit from going to Broadway plays. And I also recognize that the people who are Broadway stars benefit from the Broadway plays, as well as the people who make the equipment, all sorts of things like that. And so my point being is like, I think a lot of people are basically just big whiners about this. I think that there's lots of ways that I would order resources if I controlled them all that, you know, don't. But, you know, I recognize that it's important that I not be in control of all resources and make all decisions. And the point is you'd order them to your preferences. That's right. Yeah. As opposed to maybe being the benevolent leader and learning everybody's yeah. preference structure. L Ludwig von Mises, the great Austrian economist, had a fantastic line, which I remind myself of frequently, dealing with intellectual humility, which is that if a man decides to drink only wine instead of water, I can't say that he's irrational. I can only say that in his place, I would not do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I remind myself of that. So, you know, when I see billionaires launching resources into space and going with it and spending billions on rockets, it's not for me to say that, that, you know, that's crazy or wrong or anything like that, because it's not my money, frankly. I think there's actually something else going on too here. In addition to the chorus of people being petty about how other people are spending their money or whatever, I think part of the backlash has to do with the fact that spaceflight was traditionally the domain of states. Yeah. Right? That governments did this, right. right? And so to have a private, private industry do this really is refreshing not well, to most <laughs> yeah, to most people this is a kind of usurpation of you know one of the holy things that government yes yeah, yeah yeah uh, uh, taking away from their worship a little bit it's, maybe it's, yeah it's, it's, I, I it's blasphemy you know? yeah yeah we we even see this in you know like popular culture like star trek for example is this understanding of the world where, well, who's the, the travelers in space? Well, it's the world government, or in fact, it's like an intergalactic government to a certain we're extent, all the, sharing the in federation. It. And yeah, there's this idea that like, oh, mankind is all doing this together and there's no profit motive. In fact, we don't even have money. We just have replicators <laughs> and we won't go down the rabbit hole of why Star Trek is wrong about what scarce Steven means, but it is. The point is that Generally, I agree that like space is considered like this this human mission by a lot of people. And when you make it private, I think that they feel like it's been stolen from them to a certain extent. That's why, you know, when it was us in Russia trying to get to the moon, it was the space race. And now when it's Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, like, you know, sort of a race to the bottom in a lot of people's eyes. Yeah. 
I want to take that a little bit differently on, on how exciting this could be and how much faster it could evolve. And I think a lot of this has to do with the risk reward trade off. And, and maybe people aren't appreciating that these guys put their life at risk to go up into space. This was not a risk-free proposition. This was not a guarantee, as Peter said, going into the black box of space and at the edge. I mean, something could have went wrong. And of course, they had every incentive to spend their resources to make it as safe as possible for them. But at the end of the day, it was their money and it was their life. And that's going to make space exploration and space innovation develop much quicker. As the NASA approach is, you're using other people's money and putting other people's lives at risk going into space. So you've got an astronaut that's a super fit person and agrees to do this. And they, you see all the old training videos of that. But it's other engineers now that's not that engineer who developed and it's not their money. It's the taxpayer's money and they're trying to make safety mechanisms for the astronauts. So it's all of this kind of, how should I say, cover my butt type of thing that you're almost going to probably make it too safe in terms of the pace at which it could develop. So by having these entrepreneurs come in and being willing to risk their life and their money, they're going to push that envelope a lot faster. And now we've got this competition between Musk and Branson and Bezos, and that's even better in terms of pushing the envelope. And I suspect this is all gonna be real healthy for face innovations in the future and, and how this progresses. That instead of taking 50 years to put the man on the moon or whatever it was, I, I don't know the history of that. It wasn't, well, I've turned <laughs> it was in 10 terms years. of the development <laughs> of start to finish or whatever, it's gonna happen a lot quicker. And then of course we haven't done much since then either. That's true. With the space shuttle explorations and it's all been very slow moving, very well funded but very slow moving. And I think it's because of the incentive structure and the lack of private personal accountability that goes along with government investments of this sort. Let me steel man the counter argument though, <laughs> as the certified space hater of this conversation. <laughs> this isn't their money. Jeff Bezos has kept out competition and <laughs> systematically destroyed and lobbied for the destruction of small businesses for the past year, the likes of which America has never seen. As a result, his net worth has grown to the point where he can launch billions of dollars into space, into nothingness, and it just gets destroyed in the atmosphere on the way back down. What do you think about that? My favorite, one of my favorite comedians, Tim Dillon, had a podcast where he was talking about the COVID ripping through India and how so many people in India are dying. He said, and I want to show you, you know, Jeff Bezos has committed to doing something very important to help these poor people who are dying across the globe. And then you just cut to a picture of Jeff Bezos walking, watching his rocket. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be a point in agreement with your, your steel manning. Now to just argue against the, myself here and say, you know, a lot of these people who are saying that it's a huge waste of resources they also champion NASA of the 50s and 60s. And if we compare the percent of GDP that was spent on NASA during those years to the percent of GDP that Bezos is spending on his rocket, it's, it's no comparison. And Bezos is spending much less than we spent to put a man on the moon when, um, you know, there were famines happening yeah. in India at that time too. So I think, I think that's a great point that I think that's the best response there is to wait a second. I haven't got to go. It might not be the best. Response. All right. Well, I, I think so. I could always be proved wrong here. I, I, it's a very convincing response and my train of thought got lost there. 
the, the big, you know, way that you can tell that this is a little bit true is like the myth that's sold on the, the space race is like when you get the history, contemporary history, sometimes you'll be told this weird story mm -hmm. about how like the US beat Russia to the moon and then the Soviet Union collapsed seemingly because like <laughs> the flag went down on the moon and everyone in the Soviet Union said, uh, hang it up, it's done now. Like, you know, Uncle. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, that this was a massive destruction of resources and it's not like, you know, not like a Broadway play where both ends of the exchange benefit because one end of the exchange, you know, someone comes to it with a gun to their head and saying, you owe us taxes, right? And so it's not a, a mutually beneficial exchange like Broadway plays. This is the government takes a bunch of money from people who wanted to use it in a different way. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had to take it. It would have been volunteered. And they're, you know, taking that money and they're using it for basically to launch into space to beat the Soviet Union. But of course, we know, like, as reasonable people, that's not what caused the Soviet Union's collapse. In fact, if the Soviets had got to the moon first, they still would have collapsed. You know, I, <laughs> right. I hate to break the myth. Right. So yeah, I, I, th I agree with you 100% that if you compare it to NASA, and I'm sure Starfleet too, <laughs> we, we would find that Bezos and Musk and Branson, although maybe not doing it in a way that we would all be perfectly happy about using like government to win business competitions on the other side of things, they're doing it better than uh, at least the government was. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. And I'll leave as a cliffhanger my response back to yeah. Peter's comments there. So we'll be back in just a bit. Please visit our website at 123powertysucks.org. There you'll find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123powertysucks or on Facebook at Gordon Institute for updates on our activities and research. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom, justice, and its impact on human flourishing. We have a new microeconomics course for high school students. If you have a high school student that's looking to get college credit, check it out at our GourtneyInstitute.org page. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like ours, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Okay, so the cliffhanger was Russ's response to Peter's anti-market dribble of, of Bezos or got all the got all the money off the backs of the poor or something like that. So my first response is that they didn't have to do it, that it's voluntary, right? So that's part of the, and you kind of came back along to that, that um, we choose who we do business with. But my real zinger is that the money he made to go up into space was really brought about through government. The government shutdown put billions of dollars into Jeff Bezos' pocket and that brought the rocket up. So I think at the end of the day, we can once again point towards lockdowns that at least helped Bezos make a lot of more money than he may have made otherwise to I, get up into space. I agree with you, but I think that speaks to my argument, <laughs> not yours. Well, I just, you were laying it all on the evil businessman Bezos, whereas I would put a little more blame on, I don't want to call the government evil, but mis sometimes misguided policies of unintended consequences of government policy. And I think that is one case of it. Yeah, I, I think there's a reasonable <laughs> margin for us to say that Amazon is a, ostensibly a branch of the government at this point. You know, I, maybe that's a little extreme, but I think it, we're, we're pretty close to being able to say that, you know, if, if something's existence is entirely dependent on something else, you could think of it as a branch of something else. And 
I see Amazon as maybe the, getting to be that way, that the, their business model is so dependent on the government that I, I think that there's a, and, and tr Trump used to say this all the time as well about Amazon and UP, USPS and how they take advantage of the, that service. So I think there's a, a, a decent argument to be made for that. Yeah. So Nate, what did you find out on some info on this space ride of people well, paid? My problem with it is I just can't fathom the family paying the, and Bezos's rocket, there was an 87 year old, I think, and a teenager. And for the teenager's ticket, it was $28 million to reach into space. I can't imagine the family spending that much money. Imagine you're on Branson's rocket and you spend 20 million. You didn't even get to space. Like, why would you, that's just sad. Like you, oh, I spent 20 million just to go in the sky and look down at the earth. So I, I and you just, were doing this in terms of Lamborghinis and I missed out on the opportunity. Well, no, I said like if you, if you spend 28 million for your child to spend a couple minutes looking down at the earth when he could just go on Google and look at satellite images and get the same experience. There's VR. Whoa, same experience. I, I don't know if I can agree with you put him in a roller coaster wait, wait, or something yeah, exactly. with the VR. You get the same experience. You close but, your eyes hard yeah. enough and you're basically. How old was this kid? Uh, he was a teenager. I think 18. I yeah, think he was, he was, at, he was of a, adult yeah, age anyway. Yeah, I think he was, he was in the teens for sure. Is it a bummer to peak when you're 18? <laughs> <laughs> where, does, where does life go from here? Uh, you tell your no, wife, yeah. you know, I went to space. I went to space. Well, and then you had, dug up, yeah. you had dug up some things on future flights that I hadn't really heard people talk about. So this is, are they, they're yeah. starting to be regularly scheduled now. So yeah, taking these Bezos flights? is Blue Origin rocket is approaching over 100 million in sales for future flights. So the whole list is full of people wanting to spend millions of dollars to get in yeah, space. Multi-millions. And, and, yeah. so, and so the, the counter argument, the steel man argument is something like, well, it's not fair that only the rich people are going to space. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and so I think here is a classic case of price discrimination, which I just happened to lecture on last night at class. And price discrimination's a good thing, actually. And here's why: you're going to have these high-value customers, and when I say high-value, I just mean that they're w willing to pay a lot more than somebody else, and in part because they're already billionaires or whatever, right? So Branson or these guys start pricing this stuff out at 100 million a ride or 28 million a ride, whatever it is something that, you know, a very small fraction of people can afford. And then that allows them to reinvest into more rockets or more things. And once those high value customers had gotten the chance to be the first ones or the early people that went on, that price is going to come down dramatically. Uh, I think it was 1983, the Porsche Carrera uh, was a $60,000, $80,000 car. It was the first one that had airbags. Okay, who's driving that? The rich, right? So that especially back in the 80s to afford a $60,000, $80,000 car. And now every car is standard with airbags. And so stories like this are all over the place of, of people who have had th new things come up. The rich people get to enjoy them first, but that doesn't mean that other people don't eventually get to enjoy them. And so that's part of the market at work that those prices will eventually come down. Yeah. Well, I think Go ahead, uh, one of the best examples of this is elective surgery and things like LASIK, which started out very expensive and it has dropped. Now, this doesn't happen across the board in hospital and medical costs. It, interestingly, only happens in those areas of medicine that are elective and therefore people pay out of their own pocket. You can see medical costs rising in every sector where it's yeah. paid for by insurance, but in the places like LASIK where it's done privately. You can see the rich pay a lot in the beginning and then the price falls dramatically. Yeah. Breast augmentation is another area that's a, an example in the book that I use for the MBA class. Breast augmentation coming off of cancer, let's just say $30,000. 
elective surgery for breast enhancement, $6,000 or something. And so that's, that gets off on a little bit different topic, but that has certainly worked in different ways because now you got insurance and government involved. I think that is the same topic. That's NASA versus Bezos. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Government intervention. Yeah. And I think the important point here is that that process cannot happen if rich people who can't afford the high prices don't first have access. That's the key. That's really the key is that you never have the chance, the, the companies can't engage in what we call learning by doing in economics. They can't learn how to make things cheaper and compete to make them cheaper if there's not at first people willing to pay the really high costs yeah. associated with the project to make it profitable. And so the only way we're going to have commercial flights into space is if, you know, these rich people are willing to do it first, just like, you know, regular flights where only the rich were people taking regular flights across the country. Yeah. Without the rich people doing that, you're not going to get it. So don't worry if you're at home stewing about, you know, the rich people taking flights and you're not, you can waste your money too someday going into space (laughs) and you'll have to waste a lot less money than the rich people, which is really cool. It might only cost you the value of a brand new car. So you might be able to get there for 28,000 instead of 28 million. Yeah. I'll enjoy getting the same experience by closing my eyes really hard, but you (laughs) you enjoy uh, your time in space. And you know, I, I, I think, I think this is a great thing. Uh, I have a microeconomics professor to, to Russ's comments, an undergrad who said that every time he flies on a plane, he thanks everybody on first class. He doesn't tell them why, but he just walks by and says, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, and, and I can imagine him doing this because he, he's, he's a, kind of a, a quiet guy, but also like kind of like sly. And he, t- he said it's because, well, the people in first class are allowing for cheaper tickets for the people in business class or economy class. And we see, we can see this with microeconomics. This is a standard result that if you had everybody paying the same price, no, in other words, no first class, the price would be higher for everybody who's in business class economy, things like that. So that, that was his old joke that he would walk by everybody on the plane who's in first class and tell them thank you and not tell them why. Yeah, yeah. And for the listeners, this helps the poor. These, these types of price discrimination schemes, it, it gets more of the product out there at the cheaper price. And with the airfares, if you wonder why anybody would pay $300 more, let's say an economy seat was, was $300 and first class was... 600. I'll just make up some numbers. That's not too far off, probably at least a couple hundred more. And what are you getting an extra wide seat? And now with some of the COVID restrictions, they're not even getting a free glass of booze, but they get maybe some other little perks. And if you think to yourself, how could you justify that was 300? Well, there are other people similar to our other talk who like Broadway or who like other things, and they're willing to pay for it. So if you're either very wealthy and it's like, oh, $300 or I can ride in that big seat for 500, 500, 300. What is that? A couple pennies? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll do it. You know, it works for them for whatever their set of circumstances. And then business class flyers who have salespeople that are in a plane three times a week and sick of airports, they're going to close a $50,000 deal. They're more than happy to buy their employee the five, $600 seat. And that's a deal for them to be able to expense that off. So take advantage of all this stuff. When people are enjoying those things, it might just give you an opportunity to enjoy it too. You can see these takes on Twitter a lot where somebody will post a photo of, you know, the interior of a plane from 1958 or whatever, you know, somebody, you know, pushing a prime rib cart, (laughs) you know, and they, you know, it's like, look what they took from us return or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, that, that costs the same as a business class ticket would yeah. today, yeah. Uh, if not more. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It was very expensive back then. I, I think they were still running three, 400, but that was back 40 years ago when that was a lot of money. 
yeah. yeah. If you want the experience of like a stake in a plane, like rent a private plane for a flight, I, I'm sure that that's possible. And I, I bet it's as cheap as it was back then to, you know, fly and have the stake on the plane in the seventies or whenever uh, this was occurring. So or whatever you were doing, just closing your eyes and yeah. Yeah. Well, see, uh, regular flights are a little bit different. I can get somewhere faster with space. The place I'm going to end up is where I start. So I don't, I just don't understand. You go up, you go down. Okay. So is income inequality ever a problem? Since I kind of started this off with the income inequality ribbing, is it ever a problem? I almost kind of want to hear from our philosopher on this one that are there real effects that economists that scoff at oh, income inequality, don't worry about it. I just want to know, you know, is it, is it something to be concerned about? Of course, income inequality can be a problem. To say that it can't be a problem is just to ignore the fact that millions of people have starved and that, uh, you know, life for a lot of people has been nasty, poor, brutish, and short, as Hobbes would say, right? But um, yeah. the point, and this is something that you would find in like John Rawls, right? Is that, when, you know, you want to yeah. look at a society and look at the worst off in that society right. and see how well off materially, objectively they are, right? And if there is a lot of income inequality in the society, but even the least well off in that society have flat screens or iPhones or whatever, then maybe that's less a reason to worry about inequality than inequality in a society where the poor are starving by the millions. And I will say, I actually think this is something that a lot of economists do actually get wrong. Yeah. They sort of misunderstand what economics has to say about uh, income inequality. Here's what economics has to say about whether income inequality is good or bad. The silence is intentional. Nothing. <laughs> uh, economics is not philosophy, is not theology, is not any sort of like ethical framework. Economics <clears throat> does not tell us about good and not good. In fact, all of economics starts off by taking the current arrangement of resources as given. In other words, it assumes that it's either okay or, you know, at least like, you know, not something that needs to be immediately revised for analysis that some people have more money than others. That's just taken as given. Your willingness to pay may, might be based on how much wealth you have, and that might be finite depending on who you are. And economics says, for purposes of analysis, that's totally fine to, to have that assumption because actually it is reality. People's willingness to pay is determined by how much money they have to a certain extent. Now you might say, I don't like how resources are allocated, that's fine, but that's not a question of economics. That's a question of well, what, what Justin specializes in, you know, philosophy, understanding uh, the, you know, what can we say about morality? And but so- I can't let you off the hook that if you don't like how resources are, are allocated, policy changes about economic policy could change that. So, I mean, economics is still in there. I don't want to make it completely separate. It doesn't have anything to say about whether the allocation of resources is, are good or not. And I, I stand by that. It, it has commentary yes, on whether right. or not you can rearrange the resources in the way that you want. That's to. the rearranging part. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're, I agree. So, so for example, a socialist will say, well, we want everyone to have equality of access to resources. And economists could say, we want them to have that equality of access and we want them to be very rich. And economists can say, well, actually, we've done economic analysis, and we know that socialist economies are incompatible with people being rich. In other words, without you know private markets, you can't have the right economic calculation to bring about wealth. That's a value-free analysis. That's the same as saying you can't fly a rocket that's made out of gold, right? 
that's the, the exact same thing. If you have a stated end of people being rich and you can't do it with the technology you want to do it with, socialism in this case, it's value free to say, sorry, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. But what we can't say is, you know, a goal of equality and poverty or something that we all want to people to be equal regardless of, you know, if they're poor or not. You know, economics can't say that's a bad goal. I would say it's obviously a bad goal, but, you know, economics is not what's telling me that. You're saying it's a bad goal, though, because you won't get what you think you're going to get using those means. Yeah. Right? Or, or, or if what you want is everyone to be equal but be poor, I think you're a bad person. And that, that's a bad that's goal. That's true. Yeah. Uh, right, so so, right. so either your goal is bad or you're not actually going to get the goal that you want. It's one of the two. And that's why I'm not, yeah. for example, a socialist. <laughs> I wanted to bring up, build enough of Justin's comment that the Economic Freedom Index shows that our poor people in countries that are most free, the top 25% that have institutions in place that allow for mostly free markets and freedom in varying degrees, our poor, the bottom 10% of the income spectrum are 10 times better off than the least free countries uh, that have the least amount of freedom. And those tend to be the communist, socialist, dictator, corruption type countries in general that are in that bottom 25%. So in terms of roles, I think we've got really good evidence that shows that markets and freedom are the way to help the least of these in terms of Rawls' line of thinking. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's actually been something that's empirically obvious in the last 70 years. I think it was Mises was writing, I mean, even back all the way to like Bombay work. And I think those arguments are compelling but I think it was still rational or at least rationally permissible to be, say, like a socialist in the 1920s or, you know, even when Khrushchev is banging his shoe at the UN saying, we will bury you. He was talking about economically burying the mm-hmm. U.S. And I think it's not only theoretically obvious, but now empirically obvious that just markets work better. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very, very hard to try to skirt around that fact now, where I think you could at least be intellectually respectable and do that maybe 70 years ago. And I I do think it's important to recognize, though, that as economists, just because we know markets are better at bringing about basically wealth for poor people, that's what we're talking about here, just because we know that doesn't mean that we should then ignore people's concerns about inequality, because actually those concerns manifest in the world in ways that we might not like. And so there's a a great paper, and I I forget the author, so I feel bad. Maybe Thompson is the name, but uh, regardless, the paper is arguing that progressive income taxes are a mechanism by which the rich convince the poor not to break into their house and steal all their stuff. Like (laughs) That's the idea is it's the least cost way of assuaging people's anger over inequality. If inequality is a real thing, then we need to take it seriously because if we don't, it could manifest in real world ways we don't like. So what is the best way to help people feel better about inequality such that they don't feel the need to take like extreme measures that hurt everyone? Uh, That's ultimately the question. And you might not like, you might say, well, it's not fair that people get mad about inequality in the first place. So I'm not going to engage in that. That's fine. You do that at your own peril because if the paper's right, which it might not be, it's just a theory. But if the paper's right, then they're going to break into your house and take your stuff anyways, right? If you're one of the the rich people. And so you could have a righteous indignation about this, but it might not be effective for you, basically. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap. Any other last words? 
Let's send Peter to space. <laughs> Good idea. Yes. Yes, I'm definitely on that SpaceX. I will take. I I'll take your that. fifty-five million dollar check, Justin, uh, and I will leave the country. <laughs> I can promise you now. Yeah, so I'm going to space. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. We'd like to thank you all for listening. Please forward along on social media some of our podcasts if you enjoy what you hear. And that helps us keep growing. We just went over 11,000 downloads and uh, we certainly have fun here and hope you do too. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.